Today I want to talk about uh, something that the Lord laid on my heart at the beginning of December. And the title of this message is 2020 Vision. Everybody say that with me. 2020 Vision. Now, I'm not talking about the vision of the church in regard to what we're going to be doing, where we're going. We've been talking about our values and culture. I'm talking about 2020 vision in regard to how we as believers see and how we perceive God, his mission, and ourselves in his plan. And there's a specific word that I'm going to unfold here as I unpack this, but anytime we start a new year, everybody falls in different places, you know, some are resolution people, some are not. I'm not not even really going to get into that, but it's funny because I I hear a lot of people, and even sometimes Christians, approach the new year as though the year itself has already determined what it's going to bring. And there's this, this weird, like, almost faith or superstition that, man, I I really hope 2020 um, delivers to me something a lot better than 2019 did. I talked to a friend of mine and he was like, man, I cannot wait for 2019 to be over. Like if I just escape into the next year, all my problems will go away. How many know that's not really how it works? All right. And my buddy didn't actually believe that, but it's, we kind of get this mentality about it. The other side of it is that, okay, so if that's the truth and each year is its own power or its own supernatural being, we might as well be praying to the year. Does this make sense? So, so we don't go into this hopeful in, a, in 365 days. We, we're not going to be praying, you know, dear 2020, how even is your number and how majestic are the curves. Uh, please bestow upon me blessing. No, listen, we don't pray to the year. The Lord is the Lord of every day. And though there are seasons and things that he has allotted for us, a lot of it's up to how we position our own hearts and minds. Can I get an amen? He wants participation in this thing. And so there are though, in scripture, God points out certain days, certain weeks, certain months, the new year for Jewish people, very important. So I'm a, I love the new year. I love new weeks. God has the Sabbath and he has seven feasts and festivals and, and the new year. Why was he doing this? He's saying, not that the next week will bring some magic, the previous didn't. All of it was a reminder to get our focus back onto him and back onto his word and back onto his priorities. So as we start this new year, it is an opportunity for us to review how's the last year been and where is it in my life that I need to get laser focused on something that God has laid before me, maybe I didn't do so well last year, or to build on the good things that I've been building on the last year. Each year, Connie and I pray specifically for a word or a sense or a direction for our lives, for us personally in our marriage, and, and also for the church. And, uh, and this is what I sensed um, the Lord speaking to me. I shared it with our staff and a few life group leaders in December, but Let's unpack this idea. And I pray that this word would be imparted to you on a personal level and also as a church on a corporate level. I've been reading through the Old Testament and in my going through the Bible in a year and ended up going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And it's kind of fascinating because one of the things that God does is he points out cyclical patterns 
that he shows in the Old Testament, and they crop up again and again, and they ultimately, most of it leads toward the picture of Jesus and the reality of this mystery called communion, where it's us in him, him and us, a new people, his bride, his body, and, and his church, and, and he points toward the coming kingdom. So you go to the Old Testament, and you see that there are things that he put thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene to help reinforce when it happened. Man, I was pointing to this the whole time. And what it should do for us is build our faith that God didn't just have people write down random things, but it was so precisely crafted by the master craftsman himself. How many believe that that is the word of God? And so uh, in Genesis, now this is fascinating because God lays out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and I've never really seen this until November, December uh, in this way, but he lays out the Christian life in these four books, the priorities of the Christian life. Number one in Genesis, he dedicates himself a people. He calls Abraham. He said, you're going to be the head or the father of the Semitic people. All, Israel will come from you and Israel will be my people. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel after he goes into the cage with God and he wrestles and, and, and he, he's changed to Israel. And out of that line comes David. And through that line, we get Jesus. And all the nations of the world, we'd be blessed through Abraham. What does that mean? That when God selected or he dedicated a people to himself, he said that I will bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation into myself through this line. It will ultimately culminate in Jesus. And when Jesus raises from the dead, he will invite every person to be, to be grafted in to a new covenant where we are his dedicated or selected people. So Genesis, he picks a people for himself. And then in Exodus, he delivers his people. Okay, now think about this. You get saved and God dedicates you as his son or his daughter. And then as a part of your salvation, just like in Exodus, his people, he delivers from Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. It's a picture of bondage. It's a picture of slavery. And when we come to Christ, although we still have a process of getting strong and, you know, we, we used to cuss every other word and now we're, you know, we got victory. It's like every fourth sentence, you know, we got to celebrate the little wins. Can I get an amen, right? I can't remember the last time I said a bad word. Um, uh, that's kind of a, never mind, we'll move on. Uh, no, how, how many, raise your hand if God is still kind of working on you and... You know, if we could wave a magic wand and just, just take this Lord. So, so yes, we still battle with stuff. But when he called you his own, he also delivered you in salvation. He delivered you from the ownership and the power of sin. It doesn't mean we don't still sin, but look at this. Sin was a slave, a taskmaster, and sin actually had dominion over us, and Satan had ownership over us, and when Jesus Christ called you his own, when you put faith in him, he literally broke the ownership, and he tore up that agreement 
that you had with sin and you now took his name, his blood, his DNA, and you went from the bottom position to the top position. So now you have the, the authoritative position and you're fighting from a place of dominance on the top of the hill. And yes, we're still going to get stronger, but you were delivered from the power of sin when you got saved. We see that in Exodus. The end of Le Exodus and, and through Leviticus, so God dedicates the people, he delivers his people, and then it says he comes down and he dwells with his people. You see the, the cloud of glory. And this cloud, uh, the children of Israel would follow it by day. And there'd be a pillar of fire that would guide them by night. This was the presence of God that came down and dwelt among the people, the children of Israel. Um, there were instructions given to build a tabernacle. Before that actual physical structure was built, there was a tent, the tent of meeting. Um, it was a place where God would meet with Moses, who was meeting with God for the sake of the people. And this was God's way of saying, I want communion with you. I want relationship with you. And so we see that in Leviticus, um, God shows up and he, in chapters 23 through 25, he puts these seven feasts or festivals together and these Sabbaths. And he gives a system in which people can come and interact with him, that they can come before him and worship him. There had to be a priestly process um, before he could actually do this, but he institutes it. And once he gives this priestly process and there's a place that's dedicated and there's an ark that's created, then God, his ultimate desire was to get back into relationship or communion with us because Adam lost that in the garden. So, so God's desire was not to punish us. It wasn't to keep us at bay. From the very beginning when man sinned and we broke off fellowship, the first thing God did when Adam sinned is he went looking for Adam. He said, Adam, where are you? And he went searching for Adam. And because we couldn't be in the presence of God because of our sin, God then created a system. It wasn't the ultimate perfect system, but it would point to Jesus Christ. And it was just a system until Jesus came that God could interact with his covenant people. And so we see that he dwells with us in Leviticus. And then in Numbers, he designs a plan to coordinate his people into different functions, into different roles. And he puts together a strategy in which the 12 tribes of all of Israel and all the people under those tribes would be one body, though diverse in tribes, diverse in function. In Numbers, you see that God starts to coordinate strategy and plan and process. And then he dispatches them to go scout out the promised land. So from calling a people to himself, his goal was, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want you to follow me. And then I want to lead you into possessing the promise. So all of this points to the same stuff that we have. We get saved. We get delivered. God dwells among us. He comes down, not as a cloud and fire, but he comes down in the person of Jesus. He dwells with the people. And then he gives us his word. And then when he ascends to heaven, he sends his spirit, not just to uh, dwell with us, but to live inside of us. And then he organizes us as a body of diversity. And he calls us to work together as one unit, though different gifts, different functions, 
different ages, different abilities, different financial level. He brings all of it together. And the goal is, I want you to work as one unit by my guidance for my glory. And you will inherit the promise that I've given you through Jesus Christ. And so when we read the Old Testament, all that to say, we see that God was trying to put together something in the Old Testament that would resemble the body of Christ. And I love this because uh, this is one of those little facts in the Bible that you have to really read and study to see it. When they were in the wilderness, God organized his tribes, 12 of them, and he said, here's how I want to do it. Take the tent of meeting, put it in the middle, and then I want you to put the tribes, organize all the people around this tent of meeting. And as you travel through the desert, and I'm with you, here's how I want it to look. So we go to Numbers 2, 1 through 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banner of their fathers, or family names, over the houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting, or the presence of God, on every side. And again, the tent of meeting was where the presence of God was. There'd be a cloud of glory over it. And if you look how he organized it, we won't read it for the sake of time, but he said, I want you to take three tribes and put them to the east. Then I want you to take three tribes and put them to the south. Three tribes, put them to the west, and three tribes, put them to the north. So imagine this carpet being this tent of meeting, and you have... All these people, they're supposed to set their tents up and organize them. Three tribes, there were thousands and thousands of people in each tribe. And you have on each side, east, west, north, south, all these tents, all these families, all facing toward this tabernacle or this tent. And as they would move through the desert, it kind of looks like a plus sign, doesn't it? Anybody know what, what I'm hinting at? Okay, but here's what's so fascinating, okay? You'd think, oh, cool, it's a plus sign. So it's, it, but that's not what it was. If you look at the numbers from the tribes, and they're totaled, you can add it up yourself. The tribes that were placed on the east and the west, the total number of people came out to 294,500 people. So that's east and west. And then north and south came to 309,050. So there were, there were over 14,000 more people and tents north and south. God, even in his math, created a cross more than a plus sign. And so as they're heading toward obtaining the promise, you have a body with diversity in separate families, with different roles and responsibilities, marching forward with the presence of God in the center, everyone facing and honoring the presence of God, marching forward in the shape of a cross, pointing to the fact that one day Jesus would call us as a body who are bearers of the cross, who are lovers of the presence of God, marching through our wilderness, taking territory and entering the promise. Isn't that so powerful the way God lays it out? And so God gives us this amazing picture in advance and then we get into the word that I want to share that God laid in my heart for us as a church and I know individually. And then at the end, we're going to pray and we're going to start this year off. And I'd pray that everybody 
would take advantage of this, but we want to anoint every single person with oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so we've asked our response team to be ready to pray for you. And here's what we're going to be praying for. As God sends us out in 2020, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating, that the major sign of the end times is, is not pestilence, it's not earthquakes, it's not natural disaster, it's not war. Although we just prayed this morning with our volunteers, we were praying for the folks in Australia and praying about the situation in Iran. We've got troops that, maybe some locally, they're going to be heading over there. And we've got all kinds of uprising in the world and political unrest. In 2020, we're going to have another election, which will probably end up being um, divisive, regardless of what side you stand on. We've got a lot of division and hostility. And so in the midst of all that, the Bible says that the number one thing that you're going to see will be deception. Jesus said it over and over and over. Some of the New Testament writers said it over and over. Be careful that you're not deceived, that Satan will go out deceiving and to deceive. And, and so what is, what is going on here is that there is a subtle and crafty work happening to either pressure people that follow Jesus Christ, pressure them into fearfully retreating and being deceived through the fear of man, or it'll be through a candy gospel, or it'll be through a new idea, or it'll be through a, a self-centered gospel that says, I'm really looking for something that's gonna benefit me versus what the scriptures really say. And so this is why it takes some real boldness and real faith and real commitment to be the church in this last hour that he wants us to be. When we look at what happened with this people that he called to himself and he equipped and he walked with, they come up in Numbers chapter 13, they come up to the very border of the promise and they're about to go in. They'd seen the deliverance, they've seen the Red Sea part, they'd seen the miracles and the Ted plagues, they complain the whole way in the wilderness, but God brings water out of a rock. He feeds them manna from heaven. They watch this. It's been said time and time again. I know it's played out, but you can get someone out of Egypt, but it's hard to get Egypt out of someone. How many know what I'm talking about? And so God takes them through the process of, man, you're not in Egypt anymore, but I got to get Egypt out of your heart and get you thinking differently. And through this process, he then selects, and he's about to dispatch the 12 leaders that will represent the 12 tribes. And he says, go scout out the land. And here's what he says. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he told them, go up through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether its people are strong or weak, many or few. Is the land where they live good or bad? Are the cities where they dwell open camps of fortifications? Is the soil fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Say that with me. Be courageous. Be courageous. Say it one more time. Be courageous. This is the word for 2020 that I felt God put on my heart is courage. Spiritual courage. And I know that sounds kind of like elementary, but let me explain it. He goes on and says, And bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And so they go into the land for the sake of time. I won't read the next section. 
Um, but 12 spies go in and they come back with the report and they give the report and they say, hey, look, there's grapes the size of basketballs. Yes, it's true. Um, th this land flows with milk and honey. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, all right? Uh, there's little orange people running around, right? It's amazing. They didn't lie. And then they told the truth about the giants. They're like, we saw Shaquille O'Neal there. We saw Yao Ming there. We saw, there are massive giants. Some, the descendants of the Nephilim. And so they didn't lie. They didn't, they, they told the truth. Here's what was interesting. 12 people saw the same exact thing, right? They saw it, but two people, Joshua and Caleb, had a different vision about what they saw. You're approaching 2020, and we all see our marriages, our relationships, our family. We're all hearing the same word on Sunday. We're, we're, we're all seeing the world we live in, but some see it through the lens of the 10 spies, and some see it with a different spirit like Caleb had. They have a vision that aligns with courage, with trust, with faith, with focus, right? And so the way we see something is going to determine whether we can possess it or not. So they come back and they gave the report and based on what they said, the rest of the congregation was affected and infected by the words that were produced by how they saw. Now watch this, chapter 14, one through nine of Numbers. The whole congregation, after hearing, we can't do it, we're grasshoppers, we're grasshoppers in their sight, this land will devour us, it's gonna kill us. Joshua and Caleb, Caleb is trying to shut the people up and say, let's go take the land now, stop speaking. Somebody grab a roll of duct tape and, and start wrapping heads because you guys are gonna curse this thing, okay? So look what happens. The whole congregation, after hearing the complaining and the doubt, lifted up their voices and cried out. And all that night, the people wept. All Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or only we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us out to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. I mean, look, you're Moses. They're voting like, hey, let's get rid of this guy. I don't care if we saw the Red Sea part. I don't care if we saw the plagues. I don't care if water came out of a rock. Like, this is too fearful. Now, how many here would vote to go into the promised land. Raise your hand, okay? And thank you for the hesitation, okay? Because I know we all put ourselves in the minority here. But, you know, if I had, you know, mom, if, if your young child was here and he's only, you know, five years old, and then I found the biggest, baddest dude in our church, and I, and I stood them next to each other, and I said, when I ring this bell, the fist fight is on. But mom, God's gonna be with your toddler, okay? Mom is yanking little Joey off the stage and saving his hind end, right? It's one thing to read it in the scripture. It's another thing to face it in reality. And I know that some of us are standing on the brink of a promise that burns deeply in our heart. But though a great and effectual door be open for me, there are many adversaries. It is that 
addiction that stands in the way of your freedom or your sobriety. It is that relationship that you so desperately want healed, but when you're away from the person, you miss them like crazy. When you're around them, you wish you weren't around them. It is that financial opportunity. It is that turnaround. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that in the, in the midst of a promise, there is always going to be a giant. One of the ways that you know you're on the threshold of something great is if you have a Goliath or you have an enemy or you have a fearful onslaught of momentum coming against you. One of the signs that you're standing at the doorway of a breakthrough is that there's resistance. Because Satan does not fight for desert. Satan fights for the plush land that flows with milk and honey the land that is marked by the very words of God to you. I've given you it, now go possess it. And if you notice what he says to them, the way God works with us is God can give us something, but he still says, now go possess it. Look what I gave you. Oh, sweet, you're just gonna hand it to me. No, I'm gonna raise up an army. And in numbers, he says, every male, 20 years and older, a generation who's never fought a war because they wanted for 40 years because of disobedience. You're going to learn to fight. And you're going to go and you're going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And they're trained in war and you've never fought a day in your life. And so when he, whenever we stand before an opportunity, understand we have to wrestle with the same exact thing. Will I go or will I grumble? Will I believe or will I badmouth the direction that God has for me? Now check this out. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down before the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. This is a hot mess. Adults crying, rolling in the dust, people ripping their clothes. It says... The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good land. And the Lord delights in us. He will bring us into the land, if the Lord delights in us. A land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, for they will be like bread for us. Their protection has been removed, and the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You know what the sin was that they committed that cost 40 years? It was not murder. They didn't oppress the poor. It was the sin of cowardice. It was the sin of cowardice. Think about this. It was a lack of courage to move forward in what God said. When we come to a place where we say, God, I know you've brought me this far, but where you're asking me to go, it's, it's kind of messing with my budget. It's kind of messing with my calendar. It, it's, it's, it's really pushing me out of my comfort zone and, and I'm not really ready to go there. God is not the type of dad, like my dad, the way he taught me to swim, literally we were in Trillium Lake. It is butt cold, which is much colder than cold, okay? And he picks me up, literally launches me into the air out of this freezing water and said, learn to swim, boy. You know, I mean, very cruel, I would say. And I learned to swim, but God isn't doing that. He said, look, I'll prove it by miracles. I'll be with you. I'm going to protect you. They're but bread to you. And I have given you favor. 
But here's what happens when we come to that place and we say, God, I, I cannot go any further. I don't trust that this is going to work out. Notice this. God continued to feed them. They were still his people. There are some that died because of major rebellion, but he continued to feed them. He continued to sustain them, but they did not enter what he had for them. And I believe that though a follower of Christ will go to heaven and, and we will be in glory for eternity, we will stand one day at the Bema seat and we'll be there with Jesus, saved, going to heaven. And then he says, here's the life you lived, but here's the life that I actually had for you to live. Here's what you did with what I gave you, but here's what I had for you to do. And on that day, the Bible says that he will wipe away every tear. What does that mean? So there's no tears in heaven. I think the last tears that will ever be shed are the tears that we shed when we stand with Jesus, who is perfect love, who is not judging us like the, the, the wicked will be judged. But we stand there and we say, wow, I have a perfect revelation of what you did for me and what you purchased for me and the life you gave for me. And yet, I could have had a crown and now I'm getting a headband, right? I could have done this and I could have experienced this and I could have reached this many people, but I squandered it. And others will receive their reward. Everybody will receive some type of reward. And it won't be a condemning thing, but we will give an account for our life. But you know what's cool is he says, this is why you have my word. Because now, while you can hear, while you have a heart to receive, will you be bold and courageous and not worry about what people think, but step forward into my plan and carry out my mission in the earth? Because you don't know if you have one day or 10 years or 20 years left, but I'm coming and I'm coming soon. And until then, my heart is to reach another drug addict. My heart is to go and transform another family who's bound with hopelessness, to give somebody else the life that you received. And I know there's a lot of distractions. Even God's blessings sometimes can become a distraction. But they were judged by a cowardice. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 38, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. To shrink back, to pull away. The Greek word is to retreat, to withdraw. It's, it's, not, to, it's not to deny Christ. It's simply to say, yeah, I'm not going there. No, again, still we have his love. We have provision. We're going to heaven. But I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I didn't get saved to play it safe. We get one life. And I enjoy this life he's given me. I have far more than I deserve. And, and if you live in America, you do too. But you know what? I want to go out knowing that I spent everything, that I love deeply, that even though I, Dave is like, my middle name is Knucklehead, okay? My middle name is, is Screw Up. If anybody has like been hardheaded and God's had to be patient and implement this. It's been Dave Reesinger. But you know what? Like, because he's been so patient and he's, he's worked with me and he's shown me grace, man, every year that goes by, every day that goes by, I want to say, God, 
even if I'm just moving forward a baby step, I want to know that I'm moving forward. I never want to get to a place where I've settled. And so here's this scene, and this is the final scene when it comes to Christ coming and setting up his kingdom. Now just let your imagination capture the picture, and then we're going to pray. So God creates Adam, and this whole thing is based on, after the fall, God restoring and redeeming his people. And then God, not just bringing us to heaven, I've said this before, but we don't spend eternity in heaven, y'all. The Bible says that the kingdom of God comes down and dwells with man forever on a new earth. There's a millennial kingdom and then there's the eternal state, Jesus Christ in human form for eternity. But right now in heaven, here's the picture. Jesus, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for you and I. He's making intercession. And it says that when he returns, the next event will be when the fullness of the Gentiles comes. What does that mean? When the last person that is supposed to be saved, according to however God determines it, when that last soul comes to Christ, Jesus Christ moves forward. Whether it's rapture and tribulation or however your, you know, theology goes, the next move is that last person getting saved. And then the era of grace this church era moves into the next era, which is the coming of the kingdom. And so we have a picture here. It says, John's caught up in the spirit, Revelation 21, one through seven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That's Jesus speaking. Watch this. Then he said, write this down for these words are faithful and true. And he told me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. And the one who is victorious will inherit all things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Now this next verse caught my attention. And again, it's just weird how this plays out. So you have all of heaven standing up, getting ready as Jesus Christ is about to bring the kingdom to the earth. There they are. And it's like, we've been waiting all of creation since the beginning and especially since the fall. All those cycles of backsliding from Israel every move Satan made, every person that died in war, every person that OD'd on drugs, every person that found themselves at an altar repenting, the battle between good and evil, between light and dark, the tears shed, the laughter, the mourning, the births, the weddings, the funerals, the life that was good, bad, and ugly, all the stuff that hit the news, the tribulation, the bombs that dropped, 
the, the manipulation in politics, the misuse of money, all of it is culminating toward Jesus Christ making all things new. And the time comes and the father says, son, it's time. It's time. Go bring the kingdom and let's start eternity. Let's wipe away every tear where there's no more pain. And Jesus is about to come. We read that, but then this next thing, it talks about the traits that will mark those who will end up in the lake of fire for eternity. And it's not really that, that's not my point. It's the first word that he uses in this list of sins. But as for the cowardly, look at that. Then he lists this, the faithless, the corrupt, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Think on that for a second. Now, Paul says earlier, hey, we were all these things before Christ. So it's not like, I mean, Jesus can forgive this, but these are people that never turned to Jesus. But out of that list of sins, the one at the top was the cowardly. And you know what? To me, it says that all those other sins are produced when there's a cowardice spirit. Because a cowardice spirit is one that doesn't have the gumption to stretch out, die to self, and put faith in Christ. And what God wants to deliver his church from is a lack of courage. Because we are living in a day and age where the coward will not survive. The coward will not make it. Those who need a comfortable life, plus all the benefits, you know, plus, 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 you will be deceived. We are living in a day and age where you're not going to be able to hide because the lines are being drawn. And to me, I'm excited about it. I'm excited because it's one thing to go to boot camp and prepare for war, right? But then you never get to actually go conquer an enemy. And for us, we're not just practicing. God is saying, I need a courageous body that will go out and drive back hate with love, drive back lies with truth, drive back hopelessness with hope, drive back despair with grace. And I'm calling you to step into it. And so I don't know where you're at today, but here's what we want to pray. We all have areas of cowardice in our heart. I'm gonna invite you in just a moment to come down. And here's what I want you to think about. When I thought about this on my own, I thought, what are the areas that I hold back or I shrink back? And I know God is wanting to free me. Now think about this. We're gonna be laser focused on winning the lost, which is the heart of God. I'm so thankful for the thousands of sermons on YouTube that, you know, the leadership podcast and all that. But you know, the lifeblood of the church is new babies being born and the presence of God being experienced, right? It's his word, his blood, his spirit, and us going out and transforming lives. Some of us might have a fear about winning people to Jesus, but think about it in a personal context. You know, I heard a story about a guy, he went, true story, takes a plane, pontoon plane, and him and his buddies and his 12-year-old son, they, they end up on this uh, sound, like kind of like the Puget Sound or whatever. 
think it was somewhere in Alaska, I can't remember, but they didn't realize the water receded and the tide went out. And so here's this plane that was floating and now it's sitting on this ground. And it, it damaged the plane in such a way that when it flew, it uh, ended up messing with the ability to fly and they, they crashed into the water. And there's three grown men and a 12-year-old boy and they start swimming for shore. And they're not too far away, but there's a current and the dad is with his son. He's trying to help his son. And the two other grown men, they, they get ahead and they're getting to safety and they're like, come on, come on. And uh, he's like, my son can't make it. I'm gonna stay with my son. And it wasn't but a matter of time before those two men who made it to safety watched a man and his 12-year-old boy who wasn't strong enough to swim get swept out to sea. I think to myself, and it, may, it stated it in the book, some of us men, it's easier for us to die for our families than it is for us to live for our families. Does that make sense? Some of us have the courage to take a bullet, to jump in front of a, an attacker, to drown with our family if we needed to save him, but to show up and engage emotionally is harder than even dying sometimes. So maybe you need courage this year to actually live for your family, knowing that you would die in a heartbeat for them. Some of you need courage to forgive. And it's hard. And the Lord knows it. And he's not making light of it. But maybe you're holding a grudge and you're carrying bitterness. And listen, you cannot possess all God has for you unless you're willing to courageously confront the things that he brings to your attention. And he lovingly will keep doing it. Maybe it's, like I said, facing an addiction. Maybe it's trusting God with your finances. You know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's believing that God can bring that dream to pass that he put in your heart. I, I don't know what it is, but Holy Spirit, come on, let's just pray. Holy Spirit, bring to mind whatever it is that we need courage for in 2020. God, I know corporately as a church, I pray that we would have courage to embrace relational evangelism, to plug in, to get involved, to give of our lives, of our money, of our time for the glory of God. But right now, personally, what are you speaking to us? Just take a moment and let God bring it to mind. And here's what we're gonna do. We'll let you get to the Seahawks game, but I'm gonna ask that on this first Sunday of 2020, we take a little extra time and I'm gonna ask that the life group leaders, our prayer team would come down now and Kurt has the anointing oil. Um, he'll hand it out to you or Jordan will hand it out to you. There we go. And, and here's what we're gonna do. As we go back into worship, please no one dismiss unless this is an absolute emergency. We want everybody to get prayer. And when you come down, if you feel comfortable saying, hey, Here's what I need prayer for. We're not gonna take an hour and pray for every person. We're gonna, with expectation and faith, agree with you over the area that God is going to release supernatural courage so that you can possess the promise he has in front of you. If you don't feel comfortable, just say, uh, you know, I, I don't really wanna share it, but just pray for courage in general. We'll respect that, we'll honor that. But why don't you stand to your feet right now and I'm gonna pray to kick us off. And if you're waiting in line for prayer, let's not be spectators. Let's engage and let's agree and let's 
intercede for those who are getting prayed for. And what I believe in my spirit is that God is going to do something supernatural and there are going to be chains of fear and timidity broken off. And we're going to start this next 52 weeks with power, with authority. We're going to be looking forward, not behind, with courage in our heart and faith in front of us. Amen? Amen? So let's worship God. And as you know what it is that God said to you, why don't you come down, find somebody and we'll agree with you. And then I'll come up in a bit and I'll close us out. Come on, let's worship.